So yesterday afternoon and again today we began to explore the second of the four foundations of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of feeling tone or Vedana to use the technical term. And even though on the face of it this might seem a very simple thing to pay attention to, in some ways it's hard to overstate just how significant it is in terms of forming and influencing our entire experience of the world. Because when we really start to explore Vedana, as we were doing yesterday and earlier today, just recognizing that very first hit of whether an experience registered as pleasant, as unpleasant, or as neither pleasant nor unpleasant, in other words, neutral, before it gets complexified into some kind of reaction, that we can see is the building block of all of our reactivity. In fact, I would go so far as to say that almost every problem we've ever experienced as individuals or on a more global level, as societies in the world, is due to our individual and collective inability to manage Vedana skillfully. So if you think just in your own life of some kind of conflict that you've had, some kind of challenge with someone, and you might think, well, it was a very complex situation and this happened and that happened and the other happened and on and on and on. But on another level, I'm guessing it probably involved some type of unpleasant thought, perhaps an unpleasant sound in the sense of hearing some unpleasant words. Perhaps there was an unpleasant sight, an unpleasant facial expression, perhaps. And then a consequent unpleasant emotion accompanied by unpleasant physical sensations in the body which created another unpleasant thought and perhaps some unpleasant speech and so on. So I wonder if that's true, if you can see that, if you think about your own experience of conflict. And if you can imagine how might that have played out differently if there had been, at least in some moments, a basic capacity to just go, oh, this is unpleasant feeling tone. Just that. I'm guessing, at least in my life, that would have um, deflated an entire... Um, I suddenly had an image of one of those bouncy castles, you know, a whole kind of wobbly, insubstantial but big structure that got built out of all of this inability to see unpleasant feeling tone. And the Buddha recognized this uh, almost automatic tendency to react to feeling tone in his famous teaching on the two darts or the two arrows. And I'd like to read you the actual words from the sutta because they're quite vivid. So in this translation, the phrase, quote, uninstructed worldling refers to anyone who doesn't have any meditation training. And the word Vedana here is translated as feeling, but as I um, keep trying to reinforce, uh, feeling tone is perhaps a more useful uh, translation because feelings in English can sound like emotions and feeling tone is that uh, automatic response before the emotion happens. 
So this is the sutta practitioners. The uninstructed worldling feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. In other words, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling tone. And then it goes on. The instructed noble disciple also feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Therein, practitioners, what is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling? So basically he's saying both people trained in meditation and so-called ordinary people have these feeling tones. What's the difference? He goes on to say practitioners, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, He sorrows, grieves, and laments. He weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. He feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart, and then they would strike him immediately afterwards with a second dart, so that the man would feel a feeling caused by two darts. So too, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, he feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. So it's pointing to this tendency that we have to add mental reactivity to our experience. And the challenge is that, at least for me, often I don't stop at adding a second dart, I add a third, a fourth, a fifth, a fiftieth, a hundredth, and so on. And so being able to catch the beginning of this process before it proliferates is really a key skill in meditation. And as we started to explore yesterday, this process of experiencing Vedana and unconsciously reacting to it is going on most of the time and it's strengthening those neural pathways in the mind in particular ways. So if there's no mindfulness... When sense contact registers as pleasant, we like it, we go to greed. When the opposite, when it registers as unpleasant, we don't like it, it goes to aversion. And when it's neutral, as we discovered yesterday, goes to not knowing, feeds delusion. So some of you might recognize in that, is it a trifecta? I'm not sure. Greed, hatred, and delusion in those three qualities they are sometimes referred to as the three root poisons because um, I mentioned them briefly in relation to the five hindrances. The three root poisons are those basic unskillful energies in the heart-mind of greed, hatred, and ignorance, sometimes also translated as compulsion, aversion, and delusion. Either way, they represent those three basic harmful motivations that are at the root of all our suffering. Hence the name, the three root poisons. And again, this is strong language, and we can hear these words through the filter of our conditioning and again get caught up in ideas of good and bad and black and white and right and wrong and saint and sinner and so on. But it's important to keep in mind that in the Buddha's teachings, There is not the same concept of sin that occurs in some other traditions. So the Buddha makes a clear distinction between unskillful actions and the person doing them. 
In other words, we're not defined by those actions. Rather, the Buddha referred to uh, greed, hatred, and delusion as what he called adventitious defilements. And that's a complex way of saying that these uh, are temporary visitors to the mind. They're not inherently part of the mind. They don't belong to us. They're not who we are. And if we can train ourselves to recognize their impermanence and not identify with them, they usually pass through a lot more quickly. So these three energies are not who we are, and yet they do have enormous effect on our lives when they remain unseen. So that's partly why this capacity to recognize Vedana as the start of that whole building block is so important. Some of you may be familiar in the Tibetan tradition of the imagery of the wheel of life that represents samsara, this endless, I think of it as a hamster wheel that we get caught in spinning round and round when we're not seeing clearly. And in the Tibetan iconography with this image of the wheel, at the hub, at the center, is a depiction of three animals, a snake, a rooster, and a pig. And they're chasing each other with their tails in each other's mouths. So there's a sense of endless cycling that's driving the wheel. And the snake, not surprisingly, represents aversion or hatred, ill will. The rooster is actually the one that represents greed because it just goes peck, 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 peck. And it's pretty much only interested in where the next peck of pleasant uh, food is coming from and it's the pig that recognize, uh, represents ignorance because the pig snuffles along with its snout in the mud and it has ears that kind of hang down into its eyes so it's not seeing clearly so these so-called root poisons are what keep us uh, cycling around stuck in the same old same old habit patterns and so I think it's worth learning how we might free ourselves from them. And again, just in terms of language, the word greed can sound quite strong, but it really refers to a whole spectrum of wanting, from the most intense and addictive craving at one end through to just that, mmm, I hope they have extra cake today. So this is the desire for sense pleasures we were talking about yesterday. And just to reinforce that point, that this is not about never having any pleasant experiences, but to see where does it move from just appreciation of basic pleasantness to mm, wanting to hold on to it, to enhance it, to prolong it, to you know keep it going. So that's the movement away from just basic recognizing pleasant feeling tone into the terrain of greed. In a similar way, the second root poison of aversion is also a whole spectrum of not wanting, from the most intense and murderous rage right through to fairly minor forms of irritation. And it also includes fear and anxiety and so on. And then the third one, the root poison of ignorance or delusion, is really the root of the roots, because by definition, if we were seeing clearly, Greed and hatred would not be arising. 
But again, ignorance here includes a whole spectrum from willful, blatant denial and distortion of reality, which at the moment we have some current world leaders who might be exemplars of the root of delusion, through to more mild forms of delusion, such as just you know, fantasizing, daydreaming, uh, escapism, uh, not really connected with the reality. So if we examine our own afflictive mind states, or if we think in terms of the five hindrances that I presented the other day, all of them are some variation or combination of one or more of these root poisons. And all of the training in the Noble Eightfold Path is really designed to help us to identify and to uproot them. This too is a form of right view. So as we work through the Noble Eightfold Path and as we keep freeing ourselves of these root poisons, ultimately the heart and mind become completely and utterly free and this is Nibbana or awakening or liberation. So over time though, because we're not seeing these clearly, most of us have developed a kind of psychological bias that leans more to one of these three unwholesome roots than the other. And in the later Buddhist teachings, these three roots came to be understood as a way of seeing our default personality habits. So someone who's classified as a, quote, greed type tends to orient towards the pleasant, the enjoyable. A so-called hatred type is the opposite, tends to notice what's unpleasant or unenjoyable. And the deluded type basically doesn't see much of what's going on, so doesn't really know whether to be greedy or aversive. So... Of course, all three of us have these operating to some extent, some of the time, but we still mostly tend to default to one more than the other. And it can be a useful exercise to understand what your own default patterns are, because unless you recognize it, you don't necessarily know how to do anything about it. So one way of... of um, Assessing this, if you don't already know what your type is, you might like to think back on opening night here, Sunday, if you can remember back that far. It seems a long time ago already. But if you can remember when you first came in those doors, uh, came into the hall for the first time, for some people a very common response might be something like, oh, wow, look at that gold Buddha, that's amazing. Oh, and look at the candles, they're so pretty. And those flowers, I'm going to sit up close so I can really look at them. I love that color. I wonder if they're from the garden. Maybe the manager could give me some cuttings from my garden. I think they'd look really good on the patio, on the patio or the terrace. And then the smell of them would come in the open air and it would be wonderful. So, no guesses, right? What, what type that is. The, obviously the greed type. Another possible response coming in the door is, whoa, look at that Buddha, it's so shiny, I just about need sunglasses. I think I'll sit in the back corner where it's not going to be so obvious, but there's this big musty pile of old blankets there. 
Check out that crocheted one. I haven't seen anything like that since the 70s. Someone should really donate some money to get some nice shawls. Not me, though. I've got all these massive bills coming up. I'm never going to pay off my credit card at this rate. So pretty obvious and aversive type. And then the third common reaction might be to come in the door and go, I think this is the meditation hall. It's got one of those Buddha thingies, so uh, I don't know, like, where am I supposed to sit, though? Uh, They said something about going up the front, but I came in this door that's at the back, so which is the back and which is the front? I can't remember what did the manager say, but I have to sit somewhere, so... Are we supposed to sit in a chair or on a cushion? Or what about those wooden things? What are they anyway? Are they to sit on or are they footstools or what? Maybe if I just get a chair and put a cushion on top of it and then one of those foot things. Or maybe that should go on top of the cushion. I don't know. It's quite complicated, really. So we might get a sense that there are these three default patterns that kind of all often... uh, drive us if we're not really clear about what's going on and it's important to hold them lightly and not make them into just another thing to identify with and hold on to so having a sense of humor practicing non-identification but taking it as useful information when it is because understanding that they are arising due to causes and conditions they're not our fault and they can be changed So again, this points to the understanding of neuroplasticity that I mentioned the other night. The Buddha recognized it many years ago. And we see it in that sutta that I read, uh, the two kinds of thoughts, that line, practitioners, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of one's mind. And I'd like to read you the first part of that sutta again now, because as you may remember, it's how the Buddha defined right thought, also translated as right intention or right resolve that I was starting to explore last night. So I'll read it again, this time in a slightly different translation by Tanasaro Bhikkhu, and this time focusing not so much on renunciation, and greed, but on the second form of uh, intention, harmful thought, ill will, and goodwill. So here are the words. The Blessed One said, Practitioners, before my self-awakening, when I was still just an unawakened bodhisattva, the thought occurred to me, Why don't I keep dividing my thinking into two sorts? So I made thinking imbued with sensuality, thinking imbued with ill will, and thinking imbued with harmfulness, one sort, and thinking imbued with renunciation, thinking imbued with non-ill will, and thinking imbued with harmlessness, another sort. And as I remained thus, heedful, ardent, and resolute, thinking with ill will arose in me, I discerned that thinking imbued with ill will has arisen in me and that leads to my own affliction or to the affliction of others or to the affliction of both. It obstructs discernment 
promotes vexation and does not lead to unbinding. And unbinding is Tanasaro's uh, translation of Nirvana, awakening. And then it goes on. As I noticed that it leads to my own affliction, it subsided. As I noticed that it leads to the affliction of others, to the affliction of both, it obstructs discernment, promotes vexation, and does not lead to unbinding, it subsided. Whenever thinking imbued with ill will had arisen, I simply abandoned it, dispelled it, wiped it out of existence. So this second path factor of right thought involves removing thinking imbued with sensuality, ill will, and harmfulness, and strengthening their opposites, strengthening renunciation, as we talked about last night, strengthening non-ill will, and strengthening harmlessness. And because last night I talked quite a bit about renunciation, tonight I'd like to move into the other two forms of wise or appropriate thought, non-ill will and harmlessness. And these two are often talked about in terms of their positive counterparts. So non-ill will becomes good will, or the practice of metta meditation. And non-harming becomes or harmlessness becomes compassion or the practice of karuna meditation. And as many of you know, metta and karuna are the first two of four particular types of meditation practices that aim to cultivate skillful qualities of heart and mind. The other two of the four are appreciative joy and equanimity. And together, these four are known as the Brahma-Vihara practices. And I'll say a little bit more about them soon. But for now, I just want to point out that in every factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, there are these two movements that we can make. One is to release what's unskillful, unbeneficial, and harmful. And the other is to develop what's skillful, beneficial, and helpful. So there's a movement in two directions, and I think of insight or vipassana practice, mindfulness as its foundation, helps us to see clearly what we need to release. And then the Brahma-Vihara practices, on the other side, help us to strengthen what needs to be cultivated. So these two practices really complement and help us to have a, a holistic approach to the Noble Eightfold Path. So the phrase Brahma-Vihara is a strange term. It's a little bit difficult to translate into English, but it's usually translated as something like heavenly abodes or divine abidings or divine dwellings, sublime states or the four immeasurables. And there are a couple of aspects of those translations that i just like to highlight One is the sense of dwelling place, of abiding, of home. And so earlier I mentioned that the Buddha was very clear that unskillful states are not an inherent part of our nature. The mind is visited by adventitious defilements. But when those defilements, when those root poisons have been removed, what's left is who we more truly are. 
That's when we have a heart and mind that's resting at home in kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. So as we continue to train in these, they become more and more the default setting of the heart and mind where we're at home and can rest and are naturally at ease. The second aspect of these translations of the term Brahma-Vihara that I'd like to highlight is that these states are boundless, without boundaries, immeasurable, and ultimately they can be extended infinitely to all beings everywhere. And... Hmm. This has happened to me once before where the printer manages to just skip two or three pages. So just as we were getting to the um, powerful part of meta, we've got four pages that seem to be absent. And I can probably manage without them, but I'll just double check that they're not here. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Definitely not. Okay, those are the reflections on the universal chant of well-being, which is relevant. So, metta. What did I want to say about metta? Basically, it's uh, translated sometimes, often as loving-kindness in English. So how many of you are familiar with that term, loving-kindness, as the translation for metta? Yeah. But in some ways, it's not a very helpful translation because the loving part, you know, in English, it's the word love is, um, it has such a range of meanings. So we talk about loving ice cream, for example, or uh, love, the kind of romantic love that we hear about in uh, popular music and in B-grade cheesy movies and things. That kind of love is very conditional. It's very unstable. It's very emotional. It's very exclusive. So in many ways, it's the exact opposite of the kind of love that we're trying to cultivate with metta. And also, to some ears, including mine, just the phrase loving kindness sounds a bit sort of sentimental and and wishy-washy. And so leaving out the loving part and thinking of it just as kindness can be more helpful. Kindness, benevolence, or goodwill. So tonight I'll use goodwill because we're pointing to it as the antidote to ill will and highlighting it as an aspect of right thought or right intention. So metta as uh, that basic goodwill. And usually, traditionally, it's taught as a concentration practice. In this tradition, in the so-called insight tradition, when the Brahma-Vihara practices are taught, they're taught with a, a method of silently reciting phrases towards different categories of people. Is everybody familiar with that kind of practice? Anybody never done that, ever? Great. So in this traditional method, we use these phrases that um, are designed to bring up the quality of metta, and then we silently recite them to different categories of people. 
And the idea is that it's, we start with where it comes most easily and then gradually expand our capacity to include more and more categories of people and more and more challenging categories of people. And one analogy for this that I heard recently that I quite liked is it's a bit like a, a waterfall going down a series of pools in a river. So we start near the top of the waterfall where the pool is already quite full. And as we keep practicing, we fill that pool until it not only reaches the brim, but it overflows down to the next pool, the next category of person. And then we keep filling that pool until it overflows and down to the next person and so on. So traditionally, we start with ourselves and then move to the category known as the benefactor, which is somebody who's helped us or supported us in some way. Then we move to a good friend, then a neutral person, then a difficult person, a so-called difficult person, and then lastly, all beings everywhere. So non-human beings, cockatoos and um, kookaburras and um, insects and birds and fish. So ultimately, it becomes available to all beings everywhere. So when we practice uh, metta like that, it's traditionally it's uh, categorized as a concentration practice because as I've been trying to explore with concentration practice, we just keep coming back to one simple object and trying to have the mind stay there and absorb into it. So with metta practice, the phrases are the anchor. We just keep bringing the mind back and we keep the phrases the same pretty much for every category, so that we can absorb into the meaning. So a traditional set of phrases might be something like, may you be well, may you be healthy, may you be happy, may you know peace. And we just keep silently reciting those. So when it's developed like that, it's a concentration practice. But I recently heard... Uh, an online dialogue between Sharon Salzberg, who's quite a well-known meta teacher, and Bhikkhu Analio, who I've referred to quite a lot. They were discussing meta as a practice. And Sharon made the point that it's a way of training one's attention to be more uh, full and warm. And so when I was talking about mindfulness definitions the other day, I made the point that there can be an intimacy with mindfulness rather than a sense of separation and observing things from the distance. And on opening night, I invited you to begin cultivating this attitude of kind curiosity to whatever your experience might be. So in a similar way, that's a training of metta as attention, noticing where, who do we pay attention to? Where is our attention drawn? Who do we not pay attention to? Who do we ignore? and gradually inviting that attention to become more and more wide and broad and open to everything and everyone. So I'm just trying to remember what I had on those three or four elusive pieces of paper. There was something from Bhikkhu Analio that I wanted to share.
no, it's not coming. Let that one go. Maybe I'll come back to that because I'm planning to actually offer uh, some guided metta and compassion practice later on. Okay, so moving now to uh, karuna or compassion as an example, as the, um, not an example, as an aspect of right thought in terms of non-harming. So again, through all of the teachings, we start with fairly simple, straightforward um, instructions. And then as the practice matures, these can be endlessly refined. So if we think in terms of non-harming, generally it starts with the invitation to keep the five training precepts, which you may remember we uh, recited together on opening night. And on their most basic level, you could say these training precepts are basically don't kill, don't steal, don't misuse your sexual energy, don't lie, don't take intoxicants. Pretty obvious, basic, simple But as I was saying last night, when we practice these three arenas of the path and we bring in wisdom and the meditative understandings, our refined understanding then takes on these precepts and they become more and more subtle ways of being in the world. And they start to open out into their positive counterparts. So rather than just don't kill it becomes act with reverence for all forms of life. Rather than don't misuse your sexual energy, it becomes cherish relationships with all beings. Another example, rather than don't lie, speak what is timely, true, beneficial, helpful, and spoken with a heart-mind of loving-kindness. So in this way, all of these precepts open up from just an injunction to refrain from harm to actively cultivating benefit on the other side. And in the same way, in this teaching on right thought, we see non-harming can be extended to the cultivation of compassion. Usually translate the English translation of the word karuna. And this English word means to feel with. And it's said that when the foundation of metta or goodwill turns towards suffering, it flowers naturally as karuna or compassion. So compassion then is this capacity to meet difficulty, to meet pain, to meet distress with kindness and with the wish for the suffering to be alleviated. But for most people, at least initially, turning towards suffering with an attitude of kindness doesn't come naturally. Our instinctive response is usually one of aversion. Oh, get it away from me. Get rid of it. Make it stop. Make it go away. So again, most of us need some training in this aspect of right resolve. Because it really is counterintuitive to move towards suffering instead of away from it. And in fact, I think many of us were drawn to meditation practice in the first place because it seemed to offer a way out of suffering. So why would we want to go into it? And I think that's a very good question to ask and perhaps uh, a couple of analogies that might be helpful. 
One is if we're driving in wet or icy conditions and the car starts to skid, driving experts tell us that we should turn the wheel into the skid rather than what we normally do is yank it the other way and then we spin out even worse. But if we steer into the skid, we have a better chance of of coming out in okay shape. Similarly, if we're uh, swimming in the sea and one of those big waves starts coming towards us, our instinctive reaction is to try and swim away from it or if we can touch ground to run away from it. But usually if we do that, we end up getting dumped. And mostly it's better to turn and face the wave and dive into it. And it might be turbulent for a few moments, but we usually, again, come out the other side in better shape. So what those two examples are pointing to is that turning towards suffering takes courage and it takes presence of mind. But if we can do it, it usually has a better outcome. So on the first night of the retreat, when I talked about the Four Noble Truths, I mentioned that the translation of dukkha as suffering is for some people a challenge. Because some people can feel like a little bit disconnected. Well, all right, my life is going okay. I wouldn't say that I'm really suffering. But other people, though, when they hear this first noble truth that the Buddha's reported to have said there is dukkha, there is suffering, they feel a sense of relief as if the Buddha's just telling it like it is. Because uh, in most uh, mainstream Western cultures, there's often a lot of pressure to deny the truth of suffering. And sometimes suffering is equated with failure or weakness. And so we try to hide our difficulties or hope or ignore them and hope they'll go away. We might desperately try to appear to be successful, like we have our act together and we're in control and on top of things. And suffering undermines all of that. So we often instinctively go into denial about our suffering so that we can maintain a particular self-image. It can be extremely challenging to expose our vulnerabilities and weaknesses and challenges to others. And because of conditioning, sometimes that's a realistic fear because sometimes people do respond very unconsciously out of their own unknown fear of suffering and they can react with indifference or even aggression. So because of that, our tendency to deny and avoid suffering gets reinforced individually as well as collectively. So to cultivate compassion towards pain often takes a lot of courage because it's going against all of that individual and collective conditioning. And again, just want to highlight that this is a training It's a practice and one that for most people takes time and takes patience. But it is a skill that we can develop, just like all the the other meditation skills that we've been developing here so far. And so in the afternoon sessions in the uh, next three days, I'll be offering uh, some opportunities to practice metta and compassion. There's a lot more I could say about both of them, but I'll save that for the instructions in the afternoon. And maybe just finish with uh, one last quote, which again I think uh, points to the almost 
counterintuitive motivation for why we might do these practices of kindness and compassion. This is from the 8th century Tibetan master Shantideva, who apparently is one of His Holiness the Dalai Lama's favorite authors and teachers. So Shantideva says, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. So there's that connection between renunciation and goodwill and non-harming. I'll read it one more time. All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. So, sorry that was a little bit disjointed in the middle, but thank you for your attention, and I look forward to exploring this more with you in the afternoon practice sessions. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.